Welcome to Life Lessons with Dr. Steve Shell. For 20 years, Dr. Steve's 30-minute radio program, Life Lessons, was heard throughout the United States. Committed to comprehensively teaching through entire books of the Bible, Pastor Steve pulls out the deep, eternal truths in each section of Scripture without skipping over the challenging passages. He applies what is learned clearly and practically so that we're inspired not to just be hearers of the Word, but doers also. John chapter 14, talking today about I'm coming back. We are in that whole series of chapters that are what John recorded in that final evening. You know, some people have noted, as I'm reading through things, they'll note that the gospel of John is different than the synoptics. Well, in my mind, it's just as obvious as, as it could be. John wrote it later, and he wrote it as a corrective. He wrote it because the church was drifting the wrong ways. One, they'd lost the divinity of Christ. I think that was already beginning to be, is he an angel? Is he a prophet? Who is this? Who is this Jesus? And so John just opens up with, in the beginning was the word. <laughs> and, and there's no question what he's talking. He's talking about Jesus. That's absolutely. And then he calls him the only begotten God. I mean, he's just nailing it down and going, let's get this straight. And, and he's telling us, he's telling us uh, in all of these things, about the, about the whole life of the Spirit. He's restoring back the truths. I think it was a corrective. I think it was, it was, a, it was the Apostle John uh, speaking to the church at large, going, let's get some things straight here about who this is. And so he, thank heavens, had kept a, a, a good record, a very, a very elegant man. Uh, he had kept a record of the Lord's sayings. And he said, so he just brings in a whole lost section of, 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 the, of the Word of God uh, where Jesus had taught his disciples in that, those last hours, preparing them for the season ahead. See, this is, in other words, Jesus says, I'm going I'm to be crucified, I'm going to be resurrected, I will ascend into heaven, and then this will happen. And he talks about the church after that. How important is that? It's huge. It's us. It's our life. And so that's what we're looking at. Uh, we'll pick up at verse 12 in chapter 14, and I'll read down to verse 20. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these will he do, because I go to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, that will I do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Verse 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And we've looked at some of these already. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, a paraclete. We saw the meaning of that. And that he will be with you forever, actually unto the age, unto the end of the, this, this present age. Of course, he's going to be with us in the next two, but that wasn't the point. That is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive. Because it does not see him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. Would you say with you and will be in you? Now, more to say on that later. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Let's read that out loud. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. After a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me because I live. You will live also. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Let's read that carefully. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Father, open the word. Amen. 
For the past few years, these 11 men had been students. They had been listening, watching, helping, and at times doing. But everything centered on Jesus. He preached, he healed, he cast out demons, he prayed, and he led them from place to place. So it was almost impossible for them to think that the kind of ministry that he'd been doing could continue in any real way. And how sorry they must have felt to see it all come to an end. So many people had been so wonderfully helped. So many smiles and happy tears as healed children were handed back to their parents or tormented minds found peace. I mean, just put yourself in those, that, the, the disciples' place. They've been with him now for, for several years. They've been in, they're the people who are probably handling the lines of folks. They're probably catching if they go down. They're, they're, you know, who knows what they're doing? They're there ministering with him. Can you imagine what it would be like to watch a parent who's bringing a child uh, full of what, diphtheria or something like this? There's no medication. There's nothing. The child is dying, raging with fever. They hand this baby to, to Jesus, and he puts his hand on that child. And the child just suddenly turns a normal color, and, and, and it's peaceful. And you hand the baby back to mom. Do you, you know, you parents, grandparents, you know what this means. When somebody does something for your child, you, you give your life for them. I mean, you know, it's just like, I, there's no way to say thank you. You know, and this was going on all the time. Virtually everybody. Think of that. I mean, we, we, we pray and we have some things. Hallelujah. Just almost everybody. It, it, there was a situation where there was no faith. And uh, there was some of that. But, but for the most part, all of this is happening. Think of the tormented minds. I, I am, I'm just constantly moved by the picture of that man with the, with the legion of demons. He was running through the graves. It's up there. Probably he was running through the graveyards out of, outside of the Decapolis city of Hippo, Hippos, which is right there on, the, on, the, up on one of those mounds on the east side of the Sea of Galilee. And uh, eating the food that the people would put out for the dead spirits. You know, they do that. Pagan, pagan religions often do that, still do it to this day. They'll put out oranges and all kinds of stuff. You've even, even seen a bottle of beer, you know. And so, anyway, Whatever. They're feeding the spirits. So he's eating the stuff he's finding. He's gashing himself. He rages at night screaming. He's out of his mind. He's just, he's just in agony. Jesus' boat pulls up on the shore. The man sees him. These are hills right here. The man sees him and comes running toward him. Picture that. He's dragging 2,000 demons. Not one of those wants to come <laughs> to the feet of Jesus. The human will is there. The human will is strong and still inside. Remember that. No matter how wild someone is, the human will is still there. You've got to remember that. There's still somebody inside. And this man, Jesus looks up, reads the, the situation instantly, doesn't even wait for the guy to get there, and starts saying, come out of him. Come out of him. And then they start screaming, uh, you know, son of God, we know who you are. Have you come to cast this into hell before the time? It's not time yet, not time yet. <laughs> you can't cast us into hell yet. You know, this kind of stuff. So this, and then, then out they come into the pigs. There's a negotiation about the pigs. Picture that man afterward. Uh, he's, he's been cutting himself with stones. He's torn every, who knows what's tied to him still. Uh, he's been breaking his chains or the, or the, or the ropes they've tied him with. Uh, they probably took him to the lake. The guys probably washed him. And there he is with his hair back, he's, his eyes clear, sitting at the feet of Jesus with his peaceful smile. 
in his right mind. He's back. We've, we've followed through, you know, another place. That man went on to be one of the great evangelists. Next time Jesus shows up, 4,000 men and, 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 and as many women and children come to hear him. This time, they all say, get out of here. Remember that? Next time, after this man's done with everybody, there's thousands who've come to hear him. And that became the, one of the strong areas for the Christian church for hundreds of years beyond that. Yeah, the, guy's, the guy's outstanding. There he is in his right mind. If I've been watching that, if I've been with Jesus, watching those sorts of things, I am deeply moved. And when he says, I'm leaving, I'm going, you cannot leave. This cannot stop. That's horrible. What do you mean you're leaving? How can you leave and stop this? So in that agony, you will see what he says. Yes, there had been lots of opposition, but there had also been lots of breakthrough. Many people had come to love him. Roadsides, hillsides, backyards, synagogues, and even the temple courtyards had been filled with people where, wherever he was, whenever he was present. How sad that he would be leaving. How intolerable a future without him must have seemed. And their despair must have been obvious that evening. To comfort them, Jesus said, I will not leave you orphans. I am coming to you yet a little while, and the world beholds me no longer. But you behold me, because I live, you will also live. In that day you will know that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. Then a few moments later he said this. Why don't you read that with me? Do not let your heart be troubled, shaken, or let it be fearful, terrified. You heard that I told you, I depart, and I come to you. It says, don't let your heart be shaken, don't, let, don't become, and the word, it's the only time in the, in the, in the New Testament that word is used for fear. I mean, there's, a, lots of, there's common words for fear, and this ain't one of them. Uh, the, this word is picked, and it's, it's used when someone's about, is facing death, execution or something. So he says, don't be terrified. He said, uh, you heard me say, I'm, I'm departing. He didn't say, I'm, I'm departing is the word. I'm, I'm going. But did you hear me say I'm coming back? Uh, yes, I'm leaving. But did you hear me say I'm coming back? He was telling them not to be sorrowful because he was coming back. He would be gone for a short while during which the world, uh, they, would not, they would see him on occasion by encountering him in his resurrection body. Then after ascending into heaven, he would return and, a, and an entire new era in God's plan of salvation would begin. He said if they understood what he was telling them, they would actually be glad to see him ascend to the Father. Because after that, the Father would initiate a far greater season of ministry. And this time, they would be the ones doing the wonderful works that he had been doing. Just as he had been in the Father and the Father in him, now they would be in him, Jesus, and he, Jesus, would be in them. The relationship they had observed between him and his father would soon happen in exactly the same way between him and them. You following this? All through, he's been saying, I only do what I see what? The father do. I only speak what I hear the Now he says, you are going to do what you see me do. He's now the Lord of the church. He will now guide his people. You will see what, I, you, what you see me do, you do. What you hear me speak, you speak. I'll, you'll be filled with the Holy Spirit as I have been. 
And now you will follow me, the Lord of the church, and I will lead you. They would submit to, this is what it means to be in. They would submit to, depend on, and represent his heart and character. Just as he had submitted to, depended on, and represented the heart and character of the Father. He would guide, empower, and reveal himself to the world, to the world through them, just as the Father had guided, empowered, and revealed himself to the world through his Son. And Jesus, and Jesus said, as this new dimension of ministry took place, he would remain in the Father, meaning he would continue to submit to depend on and perfectly represent the Father. I believe that relationship of the Son submitting to, depending on, and perfectly representing the Father is a permanent condition. That was not something he just did while he came down here and then he gets back there and you know, all this kind of... He is the Son and the Father is the Father. I believe that's, a, that's, that's eternal. I think, I, think, I think it's a joyful and a beautiful thing. Their years together had been wonderful and they had reached many people. But the great harvest of souls had not yet begun. It could not begin until he finished what he came to do. Then after his death and resurrection, he would leave for a short time. But very soon after, they would be filled with the Holy Spirit. And he would come back to lead them. And he would take them to the very ends of the earth. If they could just understand what he was saying, their sadness would turn to joy. So will ours. This verse brings up a very important subject. Jesus described the Holy Spirit as a, as a person. Remember how he says the spirit of truth, he will come to you. Uh, distinct from the son who promises him and the father who gives him. Looking into the future, Jesus saw the results of his cross and resurrection and said that after he had ascended into heaven, he would request that the father give his disciples another paraclete, another helper. The word translated here as another means another of the same kind. Now, there's, there are other words for another, which would mean another of another kind. Heteros is actually the word. This one is alos, means the same. So he's saying, I'm going to send another like me. So his words picture someone of the same stature as himself coming to help his disciples. But there is an element of mystery surrounding this person. No statement in the Bible explains the origin of the Holy Spirit, at least not I, the one I've found. But there is an explanation for the origin of the Son of God. John tells us the Son was begotten by the Father and was with the Father in the beginning. We understand begetting as the reproduction of one's own nature in an offspring. So we can understand, at least at one level, the relationship Jesus has with the Father. He is his Son. But the Holy Spirit's origin is not as easily defined. Though there are many references to the Spirit of God in the Old Testament, starting at Genesis 1-2, it is not clear in most of them that the term Spirit of God is, me is meant to be understood as something beyond God's active presence. Isaiah speaks of the Spirit of the Lord resting upon the Messiah. And Joel announces that he will be poured out on all humans in the last days. Yet it is difficult to perceive from such passages whether or not the Spirit is a person distinct from the Father. So Jesus' statements about the Holy Spirit on that final evening become very important to our understanding. This is when we begin to realize who the Holy Spirit is. Jesus is the one who clarifies this. 
They reveal that the Holy Spirit is a person of God, separate from the Father and the Son. He is not simply the power of God at work. Yet, as Jesus taught his disciples about the Holy Spirit, he did not explain the Spirit's origin. His goal that evening was to assure them that the Spirit would be with them as he had been with him. It's important for us to note that when Jesus spoke of the Spirit moving to a place inside a believer, he was not introducing a new theological concept. He was simply restating a promise found in Jeremiah and Ezekiel. Both prophets stated that when the blessings of the new covenant arrived, God would place his spirit inside a person. The Hebrew word which both prophets used to describe where the spirit would locate, kerev, specifically refers to the hollow place inside a person's body and the organs which fill it. Did you see that? I'm giving, I give you several references. I want you to see I'm not in any way inventing this. I'm absolute, this is absolutely the way it is. The word means the hollow place inside the body cavity with its organs. You understand? Both Ezekiel and Jeremiah. Remember how, how Ezekiel says it? He says, God says, I will place my spirit. And it says, within you, cherev. I'll put it, I put him in your, in your body cavity. Literally locates it in the physical place. Now, hang on. This gets better. The same concept is reflected in Jesus' statement in John 7, 37 and 38. When he announced that the living water of the Spirit would flow out of, and the translation is, the innermost being of a person who came to him and drank of the Spirit. The term innermost being translates a Greek word, and this is a typo. It should be koilia, not kelia. Koilia, which means exactly the same thing as the Hebrew word. The body cavity with its belly and entrails. So when Jesus said, if anyone comes to me and drinks out of his, out of his koilia, out of his belly, out of the body cavity, with its, with, out of here, will flow rivers of living water. He is not coming up with something new. He's not being, he is literally saying the exact same thing the prophet said would happen. You following this? All right. So both the Hebrew and the Greek words used to describe the spirit's location point to a place within the human body. They picture the spirit inhabiting the physical body of a believer in the same way that God inhabited the tabernacle in the wilderness and later the temple in Jerusalem. Paul captures this concept when he speaks of a believer being a temple of the Holy Spirit. Or when he says we were all made to drink of one spirit. That's such a powerful verse, that, uh, Corinthians 12, 13. He says, um, he says, for we have all been baptized into Christ. So uh, the, the spirit has plunged us into Jesus together. But then he says this, and we've all been made to drink of one spirit. In. You see that? Isn't that powerful? Yeah. The Holy Spirit literally comes and we become living temples bearing within us the very Spirit of God. Jesus said, I will not leave you as orphans. I'm coming to you. Those words may refer to his resurrection appearances over the 40 days before he ascended into heaven. Or some understand that statement to mean that Jesus was telling them that he would communicate with them through the Holy Spirit. Let me stop a second. Here's the problem. 
we have this in our minds that Jesus, okay, once he's resurrected, he ascends into heaven. And where is he? He's at the right hand of God the Father. Okay, so he's up there, but we're down here. And so the picture is, well, maybe he sent the Holy Spirit uh, to, so he could, through the Holy Spirit, talk to us. I mean, he's not really with us, but it's kind of like maybe he says to the Holy Spirit, tell, tell Steve Shell stop preaching so long, you know, uh, and that, whatever. And, and he's, but he's talking to us through the Spirit. So we've, and, and, a lot, and some of, the, some of the, the Bible scholars as they're going through this, that's kind of like, well, I guess that's what that means. Or some understand the statement to mean that Jesus was telling them that he would communicate with them through the Holy Spirit. He would be in heaven, but the Holy Spirit would bring him to them. But it is also possible that Jesus meant the statement to be taken literally in a spiritual sense. In that case, he would have been telling them that after he ascended into heaven, his spirit would return to be with them. And therefore, he would be able to they would be able to perceive his presence. Of course, at some moment in the future, he will physically return to the earth. But until then, he was assuring them that he would be present with them spiritually Saturday. The truth that makes it possible for Jesus to return spiritually before he returns physically is that he is the divine son of God. One of the distinguishing features of divinity is, is the quality called omnipresence. Want to practice that word? Are you, one of, there are three things that generally we, you'll say about the, the very nature of God. What is it? Omnipresence, what's that mean? He's everywhere. Omniscience. He knows all things, and what is omnipotence? What is that? He's all powerful. He's all powerful, all knowing, and all present. You follow that? All right. It means that God can be everywhere at the same time. Omnipresence is not a spiritual quality. Neither the devil nor angels are omnipresent, but it is a divine quality. David celebrates this aspect in God in Psalm 139. He asked, where can I go from your spirit or where can I flee from your presence? And he'll even say, if I go down to the Sheol, there thou art also. It, so if Jesus is the divine son of God, and he is, then we should expect that he, like his father, is omnipresent. While his resurrected body is in heaven at the right hand of the father, his spirit is also able. It's not like the body's there and he's here. But he's, he, he is in heaven at the right hand of the Father. But being God, he can, his, he can be with us here as well. The Spirit is also able to dwell with and within his people. And then a whole lot of references I give you uh, in which he is, fills all, in all, all of those kinds of things. Does that make sense? So where's the Holy Spirit? Isn't that lovely? He is within you. And where's Jesus? Right here with us. <laughs> Lord of the church, guiding us, counseling us, directing us. We follow him uh, what he, as, as he follows the Father. And then it's, he said in all of that, and I'm in the Father. He remains submitted to, obedient to, and always glorifying the Father. What a lovely relationship there is we have with our Lord. The impact of Jesus' ministry was amazing. Thousands and thousands of people came to hear him. But what he modeled during those few years was only a beginning. God had a far greater harvest in mind than, one, than, than would 
one that would spread beyond Israel and reach the whole world, one that would cascade down through the generations for thousands of years until a time determined by the Father. There are many prophecies and promises in the Bible that reveal God's great love for lost people, but none is said more clearly than through the prophet Isaiah. Beginning in chapter 49 and continuing on through chapter 53, God's plan to allow his Messiah to suffer and die is described at times in horrible detail. Uh, let me stop a second. Years ago, I did this, and it was really a blessing. I still refer to those notes. Uh, I went through and paraphrased from Isaiah 49.1 straight through uh, 53, the end of 53. That whole section describes the suffering Messiah. And, 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 it, oh man, and, and, when you, when you, and when you just retell it, I mean, I just read it as a retelling. Uh, we were in tears. I mean, it was just like, wow, what a picture. I mean, he's, they tear his beard, they spit on him, they, the whole thing. And then there's this constant, these pledges of love and faithfulness from the Father, from the father to, to us that he would send his son. And then these descriptions of what would happen to him. The, that section is just vividly describes the suffering of the Messiah. In chapter 53, the Messiah dies like a lamb sacrificed for our sins. Then there is a promise that he will return to life and like a victorious warrior, he will divide the treasure that his sacrifice has won. I'd like you, if you have your Bible, would you open it to Isaiah 53? I want you to see this with your own eyes. Isaiah 53, and if you have a phone, I'm sorry, just look on with your neighbor. Um, you, you need to be able to see the two together, not have it just come to scroll down later. Um, look, look at Isaiah 53. You looking at it? Isaiah 53 up to verse 9 describes the dying Messiah. He, he, he will die. Look what happens at verse 10. All of a sudden, we see a resurrected Messiah. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting to grief if he would offer himself as a what? Guilt offering. Ah, boy. He will see his offspring. Here's the prophecy. He will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. And by his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many. He will bear their iniquities. Wow. Couldn't be clearer, could it? And now watch, therefore I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty. That, that's the treasure you capture as a warrior. I mean, when you go and you conquer somebody or you, you beat a battle army, you take their valuables. So it's talking about the, the treasure that he has gained. He will divide the booty with the strong because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. Let's go back to our text. But and don't close your Bible. Okay, so he, he, he will return to life, and like a victorious warrior, he will divide the treasure that his sacrifice has won. That treasure is, of course, people. It's those who have been saved by placing their faith in him. He, there, then a series of chapters follow which describe a great harvest of souls that will result from his guilt offering. That section opens with these words. Now, you, now just see how it's, the next, the next verse is shout for joy. Uh, now, let's, why don't you read out loud with me my translation there. Or, uh, it's not my translation, it's just New Mark Standard. Sh start at shout for joy. Shout for joy, O barren one. 
you who have borne no child, break forth into joyful shouting and cry aloud, you who have not travailed. For the sons of the desolate one will be more numerous than the sons of the married woman, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent, stretch out the curtains of your dwellings, spare not, lengthen your cords, and strengthen your pegs. For you will spread abroad to the right and to the left, and your descendants will possess nations and will resettle desolate cities. As a result of the death and sacrifice of Messiah in Isaiah 53, he will rise and shout for joy, O barren one. Now, all of a sudden, there are going to be this enormous explosion of children. We've gone from barrenness because of the sacrifice of the Messiah. Something has been released now for great fruitfulness, great harvest. In the next chapter, which is Isaiah 55, the gospel call is given. Listen, ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money, without money and without cost. Why do you spend money for what's not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in abundance. Incline your ear and come to me. Listen that you may live and I will make an everlasting covenant with you. According to the faithful mercies shown to David, I will make a new covenant. I will make a new covenant with you according to the promises that I made to David, that he would have a son, the son of David, and that I would be faithful to him. So he says, he says, Isaiah 53, he dies. Isaiah 54 says, you, you, you're going to have to, you're going to have to lengthen your tent pegs. You know, think of, think of those, those Bedouin tents. You know, you're going to have to pull the pegs out and move them way out here and get longer ropes for them. You're going to have to add curtains to this thing because you're having so many children come in, you can't house them in this little tent of yours. All of a sudden now, you've got to put all these people, something big is coming, enlarge your tent, get ready, because you're having a harvest come. Then the next chapter, chapter 56, declares that the salvation won by the Messiah will fill God's house with people who used to be considered unclean. He describes the eunuch. He, you have, the, the, in other words, the, all, the, the leper, the, you know, the, all of these who are unclean, who were never welcomed before. Now you are welcomed and your name will be written in the walls of the house of God. You belong here. You belong here. And foreigners, Gentiles, will join with believing Jews in this great salvation. And then over and over again, to the end of Isaiah's prophecies, the blessings that come from the Messiah's great salvation are celebrated. Jesus himself chose this passage to reveal God's heart. Why don't you read it with me? The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Is this making sense? I, I, my, my servant, Ebed Yahweh, my, my Messiah will come. He will suffer terribly. And I will allow him to become a guilt offering for my people and for all. 
and he will go through this, but he will rise. And he will sit there as a victorious warrior, and he will divide the, the treasure that his, that, his great, that his great battle has won. You better, you better expand your tent pegs because God is going to bring in a great harvest of people now. You who have been barren, O Israel, you have not, you've, who've not reached the world, you who have not evangelized anybody, you who have been barren, suddenly now you are going to have children innumerable. You're going to do a great work. And ho, everyone that thirsts, are you, are you lost? Are you thirsty for God? Are you thirsty for the things of the, work, of the Lord? Come, drink without money. Will cost you nothing. It's a gift of grace. There it is. There's your gospel. And who's welcome? The unclean are welcome. The, the eunuch is welcome. The foreigner is welcome. All of these you'll come. And you'll find welcome in my house. The plan. Jesus saw these promises and understood the heart of God. He knew explosive growth was about to take place. He knew Isaiah 53 would release Isaiah 54 and all that would follow. But how would that happen? Up until he arrived, Judaism had more or less struggled to just survive, let alone be a force for evangelism around the world. Something drastic would need to take place, and that change was about was what was, he was explaining to them that evening. The plan was simple. Every disciple would be empowered by the Holy Spirit as he had been empowered. He will come and be inside you. Then he would lead them in exactly the same way as the Father had led him. You and me, and I and you. And by doing that, he would reproduce his ministry through his disciples. He would continue to preach, heal, cast out demons, pray and lead them. In the future, wherever his disciples went, he would go. And as they multiplied and spread around the world, his ministry would multiply and spread around the world until enormous numbers of people would encounter him and be given the opportunity to believe. A people that had become barren, a fig tree with no fruit, would soon need a bigger tent to house all the new children of God. That's happening. It's happening right now. It, it, the, as we talked about, there are dead places in the, life, in the, in the body of Christ. Uh, but, but right now, one-third of the human population, which is like seven billion people, would call themselves Christians. Now, now are, are they all? Does God know them all as Christians? No. Uh, but that's not for you and I to decide. One-third of them. That's, that's what, a couple of billion people, practically? Uh, are, are, would call themselves Christians. Everywhere you're turning. Now, when, when they talk about the growth of the church, they'll say, well, it's, it's, it's beginning to taper off. What's happening, what they count, when, when they talk about the tapering off of the growth of the church, is they count Europe. Europe's dying as fast as it can die in, ter in terms of its traditional Christianity. These big cathedrals, these big state churches, these big, you're born a Christian and baptized as a baby if you want to, all that kind of stuff. That's just plummeting. It's crashed. Boom. But there's, there are churches now growing where there are spirit-filled living churches. Those things are happening. But around the planet, if you take Pentecostal Christianity, it is, it is simply the fastest growing movement on planet Earth by far. It is 
thriving. It, at the turn of the century, 1900 and some, there were a very small population of Christians in sub-Saharan Africa. Today, the number is over half a billion. That's exponential. That is just exponential growth. And it's, and it, it's growing so rapidly now. Because again, where are we, where are we going and, and, and sharing Christ? Where have we been? We've been Benin, and we've been at Cote d'Ivoire, and we've been, uh, where else? We've been Niger. We, and every place we're going, even in Muslim communities, we are having people turn to Christ in great numbers. Isn't it beautiful? Yes. Yeah, God's, God is, he's filling that tent. He is filling that tent with children. That he, he is simply all over the planet. I was talking with our president the other day of the denomination, and he says, because we were talking about, I wanted to get this material, this Foundations of Pentecostal Theology that we're talking, I've been working on, anyway, into Chinese. And so he was telling me, and he says, by the way, we, have, we find, we didn't even know, there's 14,000 churches in China that are affiliating with us. 14,000 churches. I mean, China is, is so, such, what they think, 100 million plus people are Christians in China. And these are, and by and large, almost all of this that you're hearing about is Pentecostal Christianity. I don't say that in a sectarian way. I'm talking about a spiritual way. What I mean is they're open to the power of the Spirit. They believe in this kind of Christianity. They're healing, the, praying for the sick. They're casting out demons. They're listening to the voice of the Spirit. Uh, they're, they're doing what they're told to do. They're listening to what God is saying to them. This, this idea of cessationism is garbage. They are not, that's not even on the map. That kind of thing is dead. I mean, who can, who can believe in a God that does nothing? But, but <laughs> do I have an opinion? I mean, I think it's an enemy. I think it's a terrible enemy and it needs to be stopped. It's absolutely not biblical. I, I mean, I, I can go toe-to-toe with anybody on, on that biblically. It, it is not biblical. And so why do we do it? But the, So the, the men and women who are open to the life of the Spirit like this, it's just thriving. He's filling his house. You're living in that age. You're living in that age. The interruption. As we noted, God's plan has been tragically interrupted at times over the course of church history. In some seasons and places, the gospel was nearly lost and replaced with works. The spirit-led believer was replaced by a hierarchical structure, and the baptism of the spirit was reduced to a vague theology rather than a genuine empowerment. But mercifully, in every generation, God preserved at least a remnant of faithful believers to pass his truth on to the next generation. And today, the plan is still working in many parts of the world, the ministry of Jesus is growing exponentially. Believers are carrying Jesus with them wherever they go, and the Father's tent is being filled with children, the Father's goals. Someone might ask, well, how many people does God want in heaven? Uh, doesn't he have enough already? How can he love so many? But those questions reveal a lack of understanding. God's capacity to know and love is infinite. There is no limit to how many children he wants in his family. Yes, there will be a final number, but I think that number will be set by the events of the, of the, of the last age of human history. Between then and now, the father has at least three goals. Number one, the firstborn. He wants all his children to become like Jesus. He is the firstborn of the father's family. Would you read this with me? For those whom he foreknew... He also predestined 
to become conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. There it is. Whom the father foreknew. When he made the world, even before then, he knew what would happen, of course. And he saw this great number of people who would, who would, who would believe in him and walk with him in, in repentance and faith. And here's what he, here's what he predestined. Predestined means to pro-horizo. Uh, horizo is horizon. It, it's that boundary line that around the world, you know, when you look at it and you think it's like there's a line around the world. So pro-horizo, beforehand, he drew a line and he said, here's, what, here's what's going to happen. He says, those who come to me, I am going to conform them into the image of my son Jesus. I want him to be the eldest son in a great household of children like him. You follow this? This is the Father's will. This is the ultimate goal of all things. That that Father's house be filled with children who become like his beloved son in character, in heart. That's what you're becoming. You're becoming like your Lord. No options in that. Who wants one? We want to become like him, do we not? So your, your, our honesty, our integrity, our kindness, our patience, our purity, all those things are being drawn constantly, are they not? And to become like Christ. This is the pro-horizo. This is the, this is the orda- uh, pre- predestined plan of God. Number two, the multitude. He wants an enormous multitude of people in heaven. As uncountable as the stars. Who did he say he was going to have people like stars? To Abraham. He says, count them. He will be, it says, you will be a spiritual blessing to all the nations. He's going to have all these children. Made up of every tribe, tongue, and people, and nation. John heard them worship. Listen, why don't you read this with me? And a voice came from the throne saying... Give praise to our God, all you his bondservants, you who fear him, the small and the great. Then I heard something like the voice of a great multitude, and like the sound of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come. And his bride has made herself ready. John can't even count it. He's just, he, he's just hearing it. And he, so this, is, this is the John that wrote this gospel. So he's, hear, he's hearing this. And he says it's like the sound of many waters. Now it's like the roaring of the ocean. You know, he, he just this huge roar. He says like thunder. He says, I hear this. Hallelujah. So many voices of billions of people. This is the goal of the Father. His, this, our wonderful Father can know you and count the hairs on your head, and he can know me and count the hairs on my head probably more easily than he might you. <laughs> and he knows us and loves us and nurtures us as a father or the child. We are precious to him and will be forever. And there are still, in my opinion, millions, probably billions yet to come. We are in the middle of an accelerating harvest that will go right to the end. Hallelujah. The disciple, he wants to reach people through you and me. He's giving us the privilege 
of bringing children into his kingdom, of reaching people who in some cases only you or I can reach. Once we understand these goals, our lives take on a new purpose. We recognize that we have the privilege of carrying Jesus with us wherever we go. Let's listen to him once more. Would you read that with me? In that day, you will know that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. Would you stand with me? Blessed be the Lord. Lord Jesus, we are so grateful to be alive in this day and age. We are so grateful to know you. We're so grateful for your word. Lord, you have given us the Holy Spirit without measure. He comes and dwells within us as a living temple. What a gift. We say, welcome, Holy Spirit. Dwell within us. Be, the, be, our, be our strength and wisdom and power that we might follow our Lord. Lord Jesus, we hear the call. We hear the assignment. And we welcome gratefully. We ask you to take us into a fresh season of understanding, just as a people, all of us, Lord, that we would know how to walk with you, hear from you, to, to see those, the, the, your, your healing power and your delivering power and your guidance and comfort and grace being poured out to many. Come, O oh Lord, train us, equip us, and bless you for what you'll do. We receive it in Jesus' powerful name. If you agree with my prayer, would you say amen? Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, please click the like button, subscribe, and share it with a friend. For more information, just head to our website, lifelessonspublishing.com. That's lifelessonspublishing.com. There you'll be able to order many of the books Pastor Steve has written.